0: All right, Trinity Church, how you doing? Can I say you sound great? It is so cool just to listen to you lift your voices and just proclaiming the goodness, the faithfulness of God. And so it is rich to be with you today. My name's Todd Arnett, I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church, and we are so excited as hopefully you felt a sense of welcome, uh, no matter if you've been here for decades or this is your first day. We're really glad that you're here and you're joining us. As the video showed, you're joining us in a sequence, in a series, as we are looking into the last steps of John's gospel. And today, we're going to actually turn a corner from this upper room discourse, and we're going to look at chapter 17, the first part of it, and we're going to have this unique opportunity to hear how Jesus prays. And I can't wait to dive in with you. So if you have a Bible today, if you want to make your way to John 17, if you want notes, there's paper copies in the back. If you want to pull up our app, you can use that today to follow along with us, and that'll be great as well. Well, we're so glad to get to be here uh, with you today and kind of dialing in. Many of you might have seen a video that I put together that came out in our e-news on Wednesday that this is my last season with you. We are going to be kind of finishing out the the month of March together. Uh, HDC voted in favor of calling us to be their next senior pastor, and so we'll begin there the first Sunday of April. And there is, as I've shared, so many of you have just been so incredibly kind coming up and sharing with us, Uh, Joanne and I. We just are so thankful for your grace and just your kindness and the way you've expressed um, just Happy things, good things for us. And I know that comes from us as well with a sense of bittersweet. So just know that sense of loss of the relationships and the opportunity to serve and lead at Trinity is a very mixed feeling for us as well. So we're just grateful for you. We There are things that the elders are working on, that they are excited to be able to share with you in the near future. Today, as we're kind of marking out Sundays, was a little bit early, Or there's some things that are just kind of coming to the surface that we're not quite ready to be able to say, here's some updates for you. But just know there are things that are happening and we're working on those, and they'll be shared with you real soon. So just anticipate that in the next couple of weeks and we'll keep you in the loop in all kinds of mediums, including Sunday morning services, all right? So let's do this, let's do this well, and that's really been a a motto for me in working with the staff and working with the elders, and I hope it's communicated to you as well. I really want to finish well, and that's what my goal and desire is. So let's finish well by diving into this passage today and moving forward together as we see Jesus, we get to hear the way he prays and that's gonna be powerful for us and the things that we're working through. Before we do that, one thing I just thought of, by the way, some of you, rightfully so, are deeply concerned. That's why these songs I've seen about God's faithfulness, about what's going on in our world, both here domestically and abroad, Uh, those songs mean a little bit more when you're just on edge and wondering what's going on in our country and in the world. And so one of the things that we're working on as a staff, we're just waiting for the elders to approve it, but we are planning on sending some funds to EFCA West, working with Ukrainian refugees. So just know that we are a part of that, and you've given so generously to our HELPS Fund. We've taken opportunities for global crises to give to that. So we'll we'll plan on giving you more of that update, but just know that's on our hearts and minds as you've shared that with us as well, a desire for us as a church to be involved, all right? Well, let's dial in. What we've been seeing in chapters 13 through 21 is the end of Jesus's uh, public ministry, it is John devotes more ink to these last few days, literally of Jesus's life. Thirteen to eight uh, to nineteen is literally the last hours. And other gospels will give it a paragraph or two. John gives it chapters. But what it helps us do is it helps us understand this is what Jesus cared about most. These are the things he wanted us to know the most, and this is what love looks like, and we've seen that thread. We'll see it again today, just go through every week. So we've just kind of finished this walk that they've had, presumably to the Garden of Gethsemane. Other gospels talk about an agonizing time of prayer, but somehow in the middle of that prayer time, not the beginning, the middle of the end, somewhere, are these words that we're gonna look at today from John 17. And and like we said, it's just this fascinating thing. It's like coming upon someone's diary and being able to read the most intimate thoughts of of what someone is processing and what they're working through. And these words that we're gonna read today are Jesus's last utterances to the Father. And that's why they just matter and mean so much to us as we get to dial in. We're going to see the first part of his prayer is him praying for his mission, him praying to finish well, him praying, God, would you give me the strength to accomplish what you've sent me to do? And the second part we'll look at is Jesus praying very specifically for these 11, praying for how God would, the Father would protect them and how he in turn would send them to continue the mission that Jesus had begun. I want you to pay a special attention to that last part, because there's some really interesting language about being in the world, but not being of the world. And and in so much as that is true, we're still called to be missional to a group of people that we're no longer of. If that sounded very confusing, it's meant to be, all right? Because that's kind of this whole thing of what does all that mean, and we'll get to dial in. So let's take a look. John chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority, excuse me, over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So Jesus is communicating, speaking out, praying to the Father about these things, making these requests known. Part of it is Jesus kind of communicating a sense of, Father, I've done it. I've done what you've called me to do. And also, Father, would you, would you please do these things? So it's this combination of ideas of Jesus making both statements and requests at the same time. And in doing so, what we see, remember that's been a key thought since we began. We began looking at John's gospel a year ago in December, December of 2020. And as we've been kind of processing through this book, we've seen so many times where Jesus said, no, it's not my hour. My time has not yet come. And he keeps telling them we're just, we're not at that point. Once we hit chapter 12, and now we're just seeing this on speed, Jesus is saying, it is my hour. And man, if it was ever his hour before, it is way his hour now, because it is literally moments from him praying these, these words, he's going to be betrayed by Judas. So this is really intense in this time. And we've talked about this word, we read it a lot in this first five verses, this word glorify. Father, would you glorify me? Would this glory go back to you? And I like this kind of working definition. Again, it's a word that we use a lot at church, but we don't use anywhere else. And so it just kind of becomes this Bible land word that doesn't really get demonstrated or or defined well enough, and we just keep saying it, not knowing what we're saying. But this working definition, to make someone the focus of attention and honor. To glorify is to make someone else the focus of attention and honor. So this is what Jesus is saying. Father, the focus is going to fall on me as I give my life as a ransom for many, but allow that focus to quickly shift back to you, the one who gives this honor in the first place, that people will see your goodness and worth and in turn honor you. So it's the sense of kind of glory is going to be given to the son in this focused moment of him going to the cross. But he's even praying, would that glory go back to you, the one who sent the son in the first place? So you see this sense of glory not being wanted to be hogged or kept, but glory shed and given back to the father. Note that Jesus mentions an interesting take on his own authority. Listen to what he said. He said that he has authority over all people to give life, but note the next part to those that the Father had given him. Jesus says, I have authority to give among all people to give life to those that you have given me. So there's this really interesting tension of Jesus having this amazing authority to grant eternal life to people, but it's to those that God had already chosen, God had foreordained, God had given to him. And really what this should smack of, what this should be impressive to you and I is, is that no one that was included, no one that was set apart as God's own was going to be missed, was going to be lost every single one of them would be included in this ability to receive eternal life. All that belonged to Jesus will be brought to eternal life. No one will be missed. And then he does this powerful thing. Sometimes you and I just kind of wish, God, would you just kind of like give us the Webster dictionary definition? Just tell us clearly what something is. And Jesus couldn't be more clear. Look up on the screen. Now, this is eternal life. Here's what it looks like. Here's how it plays out. That they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, colon. Here's the dictionary definition, that they would know you, the Father, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So here's the wild thing. As Jesus is praying, he's identifying that eternal life for those who have placed their faith, who know God the Father, and who placed their faith in Christ, they're experiencing eternal life now. Now, that's not something for later on. He wasn't praying, Father. Would they know eternal life when they pass from this world? Father, would they know eternal life when I come again for them? He says, they can know eternal life now in this moment. Why? Because they know you. Look in your notes. Eternal life for the follower of Jesus is something you're living in now today. Something you're living in now today. Not something you have to wait and anticipate as though it begins later on. I've quoted from my one of my favorite bands Switchfoot a few times and I love this uh, set of lines from the song Afterlife and listen to the way they put it into words cuz every day the world is made a chance to change but I feel the same and I wonder why would I wait till I die to come alive. I love that line. Why would I wait till I die to wake up and come alive? I'm ready now. I'm not waiting for the afterlife. I still believe we could live to- live forever. You and I, we begin forever now. I think that's summing up these words from John 17. Now this is eternal life, that when you know, and it's interesting, this is what the mechanism is for gaining eternal life, that they would gnosko. That they would, this is that Greek word, and this word know talks about an experience, a firsthand experience that they would have this kind of understanding, especially through a personal connection. So so the, the idea is, is that we don't know the father, we don't know his son secondhand through other people's experience. My son and daughter-in-law and Aliyah and her boyfriend were all down yesterday. We had a great time. And Jackson, just, I heard him saying a, something to uh, Aaliyah's boyfriend Joe, and he said something about that someone was telling him that they're a Christian because their dad was a pastor. And Jackson was like, "That ain't true." And just hearing about this conversation, and and that's kind of what that person's attitude is. I have secondhand information. I'm connected to someone else who has this understanding of who God is. That's good enough. Gnosko means I personally have a connection, and it's not academic knowledge that primarily is this that leads to saving eternal life. It is an experiential knowledge to know firsthand relationship toward. I'm really glad, by the way, no one's sitting in the front seat because I am spitting so big today. So you guys okay? Yeah, Daryl's like, whew. All right. Just know I know, okay? Just know I know. (laughs) Getting revved up. Jesus knows that he's in the final leg of his race, literally turning the last corner of the last lap. And he asked that the Father would in turn glorify, make the focus of attention and honor. He does pray this. Would you put that back on me and watch? Like I knew when I was with you before the world began. You cannot mistake or miss his claim to deity. And I would tell you this clearly today, good teachers don't pray prayers like that. Religious rabbis do not pray prayers like that, but only the Messiah, only the Son of God, only the pre-existing one prays prayers like that. This is who Jesus is, And he's saying, Father, I can't wait to be rejoined, reunited with you. We continue on, and the prayer shifts now in focus, verse 6. I have revealed you, talking about the Father, revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, all you have is mine. The glory has come to me, and I'm sorry, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled." Jesus testifies in this prayer. This prayer is really interesting, right? Because Jesus is both making statements and he's making requests. If you stop and think about it, that's actually kind of how you pray, how I pray as well. We're saying things to the Father that are either reinforcing something we know of him or just simply sharing our feelings, sharing where we're coming from. And at the same breath or the next breath, we're asking God, but would you? And one of the things Jesus begins by saying is that he has accurately communicated, accurately taught these disciples so that they might know the Father. He's saying, I've given them, you have know, incarnationally revealed the Father to them. And he states that what he's revealed about the Father has been received by these 11 with acceptance and belief. It hasn't gone on deaf ears. It hasn't just been stated and thrown out in the wind. It's been accepted and believed. And in that, what Jesus is doing, he's underscoring the need for information, underscoring the need for accurate, truthful communication about who God is so that other people might accept, might place their belief in him. Paul said something similar when he wrote to the Roman Christians in Romans 10. He says in verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in and how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? How can they do that? How can they believe in someone, the saving Messiah they've never even heard of? They need information. They need that communicated so they might both accept and believe. Jesus makes it clear in this next part of the prayer that he's praying for these 11 disciples. He makes a clear distinction between them and those of the world. He says, I'm not praying for everyone right now on the planet, I'm not praying for every living human being, I'm not praying for every single person, but I'm praying specifically for those who are yours. Father, I'm praying for them and I'm I'm praying that these things would be true of them, those you have given me. We're gonna see some more on this distinction as we go further in the prayer, these disciples and those that are of the world, but I want you to hear Carson's words today regarding how this should develop within us, how this should develop within us who have placed our faith, who have both accepted and believed in Jesus a great sense of value and esteem because we are his. Carson writes, however wide is the love of God, However salvific the stance of Jesus toward the world, there is a peculiar relationship of love, intimacy, disclosure, obedience, faith, dependence, joy, peace, eschatological blessing, and fruitfulness that binds the disciples together and with the Godhead. These themes have dominated the farewell discourse. By the way, I love that phrase. We often refer to it as the upper room discourse. Carson calls it the farewell discourse. I'm I'm leaning in. I'm participating with you. I'm giving you last ideas before I return to the Father. And I love the way Carson encapsulates that like, I never could. There is a peculiar relationship that Jesus has to his own and it's filled with all of these things that are rich, all of these things that are so to be embraced, so to be grateful for, so to, see, so to feel valued by. And my prayer is that you would feel that way today. Verse 10 is of interest because it demonstrates that Jesus has received glory, has been made the focus of honor and attention. How? Through them, Through these disciples' acceptance and belief, recognizing his identity as Messiah. Look in your notes. I don't know if we ever put these ideas together well, but Jesus receives glory, attention, and honor when we demonstrate acceptance and belief in him as Messiah. Jesus receives glory when we demonstrate acceptance and belief in who he says he is. I think for some of us, we kind of think that it's got to be so much more complicated than that, that there's got to be so many other kinds of things I would need to do in order to bring glory to Jesus than simply accepting and believing that he is who he says he is. And while those other things may also contribute great focus and attention on Jesus, it begins very basically, very simply when we would not just say, not just have thoughts, but demonstrate in our lives, Jesus, I accept and I believe that you are the Holy One of God, that you are the Messiah. I would want you to take stock in that today. I would want you to feel a sense of just, God, that's good. Because sometimes in my life, I don't know that you get much glory from me. Sometimes in my life, I don't know that that's obvious or apparent to me that you're receiving glory out of the way that I'm living, but this is good to know. simply day to day, day in, day out, I accept and I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That brings glory to Jesus. And that's a cool thing to know and a cool thing to hang on to and say, God, thank you. Thank you for just even communicating that to me in this prayer. See what Jesus prays for concerning these 11, that the Father would protect them while they remain in the world and he departs, right? That's a big deal. That's what has them so freaked out. If we were talking about doing all these things together, Jesus is staying with us, I think the disciples would have had a different reaction. But he's told them clearly in plain language, I am leaving you. And so they are freaked out, so as Jesus is praying, Father, as I return to you, would you protect them by your name? That's the kind of language that he uses. By the power of your name. Various commentators see this idea through differing lenses, but I would say no matter what, no matter what the concept it communicates, that by the same name that Jesus protected them when he was with them, Now he'll return to the Father, and it's by that same name that the Father will protect them in Jesus' absence. Here's an important question we have to ask. What's the nature of this protection? That Jesus' followers would not suffer hardship or loss? That they would not be harmed? Well, if you've read ahead, from John's gospel to the next book in your New Testament, the Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. Many have said, probably better said the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But in the book of Acts, what we read and what we know from church history is that every, watch this, every single one of these 11 is going to either die for their faith because they've accepted and they believe that Jesus is who he is, or they're going to have so much difficulty, so much torture, so much persecution they wish they would have. So watch this. Jesus, knowing full well what's going to happen to them in the days, years, months, and years to come, he's praying for their protection. All along, knowing the harm they're going to face. It begs the question, did Jesus not pray hard enough? Was the Father not listening? Was there something that these disciples would do that was so disobedient that it would cause them such great pain? you would say, Todd, why would you go there? Why would you assume those things? Can I tell you why? Because you do. Because I do. When we go through times of intense difficulty, when our life intersects with circumstances and situations when we aren't sure God's paying attention, those are exactly the questions we ask. God, did I not pray hard enough for this to happen, for this difficulty and hardship to be out of my life? Father, were you not listening? Were you not paying attention when I asked you to intervene and do this thing? Father, what Disobedient thing must I have done to deserve this kind of pain? These are the things we struggle with. These are the things we wrestle with. And I guarantee you, these would have been the things that disciples would wrestle with in just days, weeks, and months to come. What kind of protection? was Jesus praying for, for the disciples. The protection that Jesus was talking about, the protection that prayed for and was granted to his disciples, though they suffered immensely for the gospel after this night, was a kind of protection he actually contrasts with the one of them who was not ultimately of them. The one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. And what was this one? Judas, what was true of him, what we just read, that he was lost. None has been lost except. That's the protection that Jesus is praying for. And you know, he knew why to pray that way, because it's the most important thing. Paul, in his letter, the same letter to the Romans He said that this would be true of those who were Jesus's and loved by him. Nothing will separate us. Watch this. We will never be lost. Romans chapter eight, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Watch all the things that we just now are gonna read about that we just said that these 11 would experience. Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Will any of those things separate us from what matters most? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yay, God? God. Man, that's it. That's the protection that Jesus is praying for. And if you would say, Jesus, that's all good, but I wish the other kinds of protections were there too. I get it. But I wanna keep reminding you, reminding me, that Jesus knows absolutely what's best and he knows absolutely what matters most and what matters most in your life and my life is not that we be protected from difficulty but that we not be separated from the love of God. That's what matters most. And I will tell you today, this can be very easy for me to preach from a stage. But when... Our lives intersect with what feels like a lack of God's protection for us or those that we love. These are truths that we have to cling to, promises that we must clutch and hold tightly to. If that's you here today, man, I would just encourage you, hold tight. Hold tight in the midst of all the other things that are going on, knowing that Jesus is holding tight to you. Lastly, John 17, verse 13, I am coming to you now, Jesus speaking to the Father, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and your word, the world, I'm sorry, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them, who? From the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. The first part of this last sequence for today, Jesus talks about joy. And he talks about an interesting way that joy is transferred, and it's very common. It happens all the time. Jesus is saying, I gave them your word. I gave them the truth of who you are, the truth of who I am, and that gave me great joy in sharing, and sharing the greatness and the grandeur of who you are, the the plan of what you have, Father, to redeem the world. That gave me great joy in, in sharing it. When they accepted and believed, received this, it gave them great joy. It happens every time that you have good news and you're elated to share that good news with someone else. And there's a transference of joy. Joy, it's not joy lost on you. You actually experience joy in telling it. But especially when they receive it, now that joy is within them. Jesus is saying that's the dynamic in the relationship. I have given them your word. But he says an inverse thing happened. He says, when I've given them your word, they accepted, they believed that then the world turned on them. I've given them your word, joy that they could know. Now they knew, but as a result, they were excommunicated. They were, as it were, kicked out of the ranks. I gave them your word. They're no longer of the world. So he talks about this inverse relationship that happens. We've said it before. I loved it when Taunus was here a few weeks ago. I think he was here on Super Bowl Sunday, Dalton. Does that sound familiar? The day the Rams just totally won. That was awesome. Good. Yeah. I thought Dalton would be excited about that. So, and some would say, Dalton, that I'm wearing, I'm still celebrating a Rams victory. Or the fact that UCLA finally won last night. It's been three years, folks. It's been a long time, so... You knew, right? You knew I had to get that in there. Come on. Thank you, Frank. All right. So Dalton's like, wait, I thought we were still talking about the Rams. That's not a good. Sorry. So in this sequence, what is Jesus doing? Tannis did a great job a few weeks ago. That's what I was talking about. Tannis did a great job talking about how John uses the word the world in his gospel. Same Greek word every time. So every time in John's gospel, you read the world, you read of the cosmos, but like Thomas told us is that the context is so important because it says that God so loved the world, sent his son to die for it, but now Jesus talks with animosity, talks about the world has rejected me, rejected them, we're not of the world, and there's an animosity in the relationship. How can both these be true? I tell people I will probably die a youth pastor at heart. I loved my time being a youth pastor, and there's still things within that that never go away. And one of those things is I love to play games. Not every youth group plays games anymore, but I loved it. And we would play this great game called Amoeba Tag. This is how it worked. You would have all the students on one side, and then as a youth pastor, sometimes it was I wanted to pick that kid that I just really wanted to get so tired before we would go in and start doing other things that (laughs) night, just get them exhausted, so I'm too tired to crack jokes and be an idiot tonight, so I'm like, perfect. So I'd usually ask that kid to be it, whole youth group on one side, it in the middle, and the job was you had to run from that side to that side without being tagged, but it would always get at least somebody and maybe two people. And this was the deal. When you got tagged as it, you would link arms. Sometimes we just do kind of link, um, you know, elbows and you'd be a new team. But the amoeba would grow. So once you were not it and you got tagged, you became part of It. And this group was very large compared to the one at the beginning, but by the time we were done, and they'd run back and forth, at the very end, there was one person, and the amoeba was the one who was huge. Make sense? So you weren't it, but when you got tagged, you became part of it. You're like, Todd, what on God's green earth? Does that have to do with anything? (laughs) I feel I've always felt like it's a great illustration for the way the gospel works that you place someone in a context of relationships who loves Jesus and knows him well via Jesus' influence, he or she begins to, quote, go after people, tag them, come up close, can't tag from afar, come up close and tag them. And, and when they got tagged through that sequence, God's using and working in their lives, they come to Christ, they join the amoeba. They become it. And then as friends keep going back and forth in their lives, they keep reaching out with influence and the it keeps getting bigger. Jesus is saying that you were a part of the world. Every single one of you, myself included, we were on that side on the line. But as we kept running back and forth, as it were, across the field of life, we kept intersecting with people who were it. People who had placed their faith in Jesus. And people who understood they weren't supposed to keep it to themselves. And they wanted to share it with you. And over time and through the incredible work of the Holy Spirit waking the dead in you, you came to put your faith in him. And watch. You were no longer of the world, but now you are his. That's how it works. You became a part of that group. And when we think about the challenge of how does God love a world that is opposed to him? That's what this John 17 connotation of the world, that is what that which is in opposition to me, to God, and to everything I'm trying to do. How can God love those people? Anyone outside of this context who does not understand the gospel has no category for that. But everyone who does, does. C.S. Lewis said it this way, when Christianity says that God loves man, this is old English, he would be talking about human beings, not just males. It means that God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested concern for our welfare. But that in an awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You ask for a loving God, you have one. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds, persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. How, sh- how this should be, I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creatures, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so prodigious in their creator's eyes. It is certainly a burden of glory, not only beyond our deserts, deserts, but also, except in rare moments of grace, beyond our desiring. He has such a way of putting words in ways I couldn't even begin, but they resonate within me. This is love. And as we understand in a fuller degree in your notes, the kind of protection that Jesus was praying for just moments before, it's not that they would be insulated or removed from this world that hates them, but that they would be protected from the evil one. If we were trying to discover what is this protection of, we already knew it wasn't harm, we knew it wasn't difficulty, that was inevitable. We knew it was a protection to not be distant, separated from the love of God, and how would that happen? It would wanna happen through the evil one. The one, by the way, who wants more than your shell, he wants your soul. The one who would attempt to separate you from the love of God that Lewis just communicated so powerfully to us. Nothing can separate us from him. And we see another theme appear earlier in Jesus' prayer that they would be sanctified, that they would be made holy, set apart for a purpose. How? By the truth. By the truth, so watch this. The means by which the disciples came to accept and believe that Jesus was the Messiah was the same means by which they would uniquely be set apart for his purposes. This truth that transforms us from unbelief to belief and then which transforms us from sinners to saints. All found in the word, the truth of who God is. And as a result, like Jesus, they are no longer of the world. As we just said a minute ago, they've been tagged and are now on the other team. I want to finish by making sure we don't miss the missional message. That's a lot of M's in one phrase. We don't miss the missional message that is contained in the last part of Jesus' prayer. In your notes, Jesus' disciples weren't to simply demonstrate belief or live set-apart lives but they were to be messengers in the same way that Jesus was a messenger of the Father's good news of salvation. Can you imagine my game, maybe you've never seen it, maybe you've never played it, but can you imagine the one person who's it and the field of people running this way? And can you imagine that person who's it tagging someone, but then in being tagged, just simply walking off to the side of the game and watching? You have one on 50. And every single time they come, you are on your own trying to tag all these people as opposed to an amoeba that grows until ultimately there's nowhere else to go. That's not how the game works. You get tagged and you go sit on the sideline. You get tagged and you actively become someone who's tagging others. Even though we are no longer of the world, Jesus prays not that we'd be taken out of it, but just the opposite, that we would be sent into it just like him. Look what we read a minute ago. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. As you've sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And how did Jesus explain his mission, what he was sent to do? Luke chapter 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was the mission. And he's extending that mission to his disciples 2,000 years ago. He's extending that mission to his disciples today. It was the prayer of Jesus then and now, just hours before he was going to the cross to atone for their very sins and to make them right with the Father, that they would live lives on mission and bring the good news to those who were still in the world and, but like them, would come out of it still on that side of the game, but would come, be tagged, and be brought in. It's the rest of the passage that we read earlier in Romans 10 today, let me recap. How then can they call on the one whom they've not believed in, and how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them, without someone communicating to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? Watch, Jesus prayed that you'd be sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's this simple. You might be like me and you just freak out at the notion. Hi, I know you've never met me. My name's Todd and do you want to know Jesus? I hate that. Not saying it's not effective in some instances. There are so many other things in my life I'd rather do. And the problem is, is that when we begin to think that's what evangelism is, so many of us check out. But when we realize that God and his infinite sovereignty has sovereignly, supernaturally placed you in a relational world, people that you do life with day in and day out, he's given you relational collateral for the purpose that you would have Jesus' influence in their lives. When we understand that, And not this is the way that God primarily changes lives that he primarily quote tags people into the other team. Then we begin to realize that we could do that. You'll note in this passage never once did Jesus caveat any of this with those who are gifted in evangelism. He said it for all of us. And you'll note that we ought not give this away to other churches in our community, give this away to other people, Christians in our people's lives when he's asked us to step in. He's asked us to be people of Jesus' influence. So as we close today, would you keep this thought in mind? It's about you being rescued to rescue. It's about being a person who has beautiful feet in the lives of those in your relational world. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today and are just so blown away, so grateful for this incredible insight into how Jesus prayed the last hours of his life before going to the cross. That kind of insight, that kind of information just blows our minds that we would have record of it, that we could see how Jesus prayed on his own behalf, but we could also see how he prayed on behalf of these 11 And knowing that we are those disciples now, 2,000 years later, help us embrace every single one of those things. He prayed for them, he prayed for us. And would you help us this week? Would you help us this week to be a people moving forward who recognize, God, that you have called us out of the world, but yet you've sent us back into it? It seems paradoxical for us because we would want to retreat. We would want to get as far away, quote, from the world as we could. But you said just the opposite be intentional, be strategic, be on mission to the very same world you used to be a part of. Father, we want to be those people. We want to be that church. We want to be a people who bring great glory to you, not just because we've accepted and believed but because we want to be influential in others doing the same. If you're here today and you have never placed your faith in Jesus, you have never gnoskoed, you've never from firsthand experience up close and personal known who the Father is and his Son he sent, I have great news for you. There's no class to attend. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no religious ladder to climb. There is simply an invitation that Jesus makes to you today. The same invitation we responded to. A, would you admit? Admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, would you believe? Would you believe that Jesus is the only savior available? We read it just a couple of weeks ago. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Would you see, choose? Choose not religion, choose relationship. Choose to be tagged as it were and come out of the world, be a part of Jesus's family. Follow his example of living on mission like he did. That's where it begins. And I would pray you'd make that your prayer today. Father, we love you. Send us out this week to be these kind of people, to be this kind of church. And would you build all of this on the foundation of your immense love for us. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.